This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In the well-researched and well-written volume, Calvin Meets Voltaire, the Clergy of Geneva, during the Age of Enlightenment, 1685 to 1798, Jennifer Powell McNutt argued that there was more continuity than has sometimes been thought between 18th century Genevan theology, piety, and practice and that of Calvin's Geneva in the 16th century. She leans particularly upon the sermons preached by the ministers in Geneva to make her case that in the 18th century, as the Genevan church faced modernity, they adapted their teaching to meet the challenge, but without compromising essentials of the Christian faith. And that's the question at hand. We had the pleasure of talking with Dr. McNutt recently on Office Hours about her thesis, and it seemed worth following up that discussion with our own Dr. Ryan Glomsrud, Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Ryan teaches our courses on modern theology, and he earned his DPhil at Oxford University on Karl Barth, and he's done postdoctoral research at Harvard University. He's an ordained elder at Christ United Reformed Church in Santee, California. This is a two-part episode. Here are some highlights from part one. Protestant Orthodoxy is a broad period of Protestant ecclesiastical and theological history. It's a period that runs from 1560s into the 1640s. As you get into the 17th century, the academy becomes more important. It's a whole changing intellectual and social climate. And we know a few of the key high Orthodox theologians. This is a period that runs, at least according to Muller, really from the close of the Thirty Years' War from the 1640s into the early 18th century to 1720, 1725. This is a period where you start to see more controversy inside and outside of the church as they wrestle with a whole host of issues, not just Emeraldianism, narrowly defined as a debate about the extent of the atonement, but a whole cluster of issues. All these things are at stake and being debated. During the 16th century, the Reformed and the Lutherans sort of routed Rome. Catholicism is really on the rise, and our Reformed fathers are responding to all of these challenges within and outside of the church. I mean, this is really coincides with the age of reason. We're not dealing with the Enlightenment yet. It's the beginning of a real shift and change in the intellectual environment. It's an age of troubled reason. As an age of transition. It was also a time of great piety and devotion. But then there's this third period. Late Orthodoxy. As the high period of Orthodoxy draws to a close, there are probably two significant events, one theological and one civil, political. The first is Francis Turretin's death in 1687. And the other event that's political in nature is the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. The implications of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes is something that's sort of front and center to the debates that the late Orthodox have. So that's the closing of this high period of Orthodoxy, leading into this late period, which is dark and mysterious. It's much less well-known than the early and high period, running from roughly 1725 into the 1770s. This is a more diverse period of theological history. Rationalism would be much more positive uses and appropriations of philosophy, of natural science, of learning, 
At the same time, there's a group of philosophers known as empiricists mm -hmm. who are saying that if I can't experience it with my senses, then it doesn't exist. So now the questions have shifted fairly dramatically from what has God said to, increasingly, has God said? This is the beginning of pietism, but it's the interiorization of religion. The priesthood of all believers is so emphasized that it begins to undermine the special office of ministers. And so that's also part of what Professor McNutt's book addresses. In the 17th century, 16th and 17th centuries, the Reformed Orthodox and the churches wrote confessions, authoritative summaries of what the churches had concluded about a variety of questions. But by the 18th century, those confessions come to be somewhat marginalized. Absolutely. And the best quotation that I know of is actually from Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was from Geneva, exiled for a while, returned. In his letters from the mountain, he has this to say, the pastors of Geneva are a strange breed. One knows not what they believe, nor what they do not believe, nor even what they pretend to believe. And that's the story that's told about the late Orthodox theologians. They become deists, they're theologically confused. This is part two of our two-part episode with Dr. Ryan Glomsrud. Earlier, we made a reference to the First Great Awakening, which many scholars regard as the beginning of modern evangelicalism, or modern evangelical religion. Is what is happening in Geneva during the same period in some ways parallel? Not that there's a Great Awakening, but there is a movement towards something like broad evangelicalism. And that leads me into asking about how Professor McNutt analyzes 18th century Genevan orthodoxy. She does so by looking at sermons, but not so much by looking at the theologies that they wrote. That's right. And one of the wonderful things about her books is that it explores this foreign territory, and it's filled with all the wonderful stories that only can be found in the archives at this point. She immersed herself in the archives. She read sermons. She studied the biographies of several generations of Genevan clergymen. And so she can introduce to us for the first time, really, the succession of pastors in this late Orthodox period. And her project is an interesting one, just to sort of lay it out before we engage it in more detail. Her project is to rehabilitate the late Orthodox theologians and to revise the story that was handed down to us from the French philosophes. They're not bumblers and incompetent. They don't just become deists or moralists. They were moral, to be sure, and they believed in God, but they weren't what Rousseau would have us to believe. That's part of her story, is a rehabilitation project to improve their image and talk about their theological contributions to Protestantism more generally and the Reformed tradition specifically. And she does this by demonstrating the real flourishing of piety and showing the vitality of an evangelical form of religion. And I think that's probably what you were getting after talking about the first great awakening. Rather than being sort of deists and moralists who began to neglect church life, she goes through sermons to show that there's a real healthy form of Christian piety that's at work in the lives and preaching of these ministers and then presumably also in the congregations. So in other words, this is not a story of decline as Rousseau would have us believe. It's a story about the rise of a new ethos within Protestantism. It's a pious form of Protestantism. At one point, I think she calls it a moderation 
of Calvinism. And there are probably at least three different characteristics of this moderated form of Calvinism that she lays out. And that is one of the questions that we should explore for at least a minute. Did Reformed Orthodoxy, Calvinism, as it existed in the late 17th century, coming into the early 18th century, need to be moderated. And one of the symbolic acts that happened in that transitional period in Geneva was the renunciation of the second Helvetic Consensus formula. Yeah, we got to come back to that, though. In terms of this moderation of Calvinism, she describes a new rhetoric, a new ethos in Geneva in this late Orthodox period. New priorities begin to emerge, according to her description. The essentials and basics of the faith take on more importance than what she would refer to as the secondary matters. There's an ethical, pious, and devotional form of Christian life, and this is part of a new ethos. Another important characteristic of this moderated form of Calvinism is a return or a certain faithfulness to Calvin, to Calvin himself, Calvin the man, Calvin the preacher, as much or more than the later Calvinists. And so this raises the question of continuity, right? Calvin versus the Calvinist in Reformed Orthodoxy, depart from Calvin. How do we think about all that? Very true. And but here she helps us, I think, clarify and sharpen our picture of this period. It's not as if these late Orthodox period are abandoning Calvin. They're actually trying to own his legacy in new ways. And so she, at various points in the book, describes how these late Orthodox theologians will actually defend Calvin's reputation against the French philosophes and others, which is, we could circle back to this later if you'd like, but a kind of extension of Amarov's approach to Calvin, really making Calvin almost more important for the tradition than he really was. That's something that Moses Amaro did, and now you see it again here in this late Orthodox period. Which is one of the themes that Richard Muller has pursued for 30 or more years, trying to calibrate properly Calvin's significance in Reformed theology. And he's done his best to try to say, listen, Calvin is very important, but he's not the be-all and end-all That's of right. Reformed theology. He doesn't define the Reformed tradition or a Reformed identity. Our confessions play that role. And he was a towering figure in our tradition. But in the 18th century, doesn't he begin to take the role that he sort of took in the 20th century, and that is as the defining figure That's of right. Reformed That's right. And so she also shows that a part of this faithfulness uh, to Calvin can be demonstrated by looking at the late Orthodox appreciation and use of Calvin's catechism. And so there are confessional debates about which confessions to use, whether to use confessions at all. And these late Orthodox theologians, she shows us, spent a good deal of time trying to recover Calvin's catechism. And went through various versions, it's a little more complicated than just that. but And that's part of, she suggests, uh, that's evidence that they are faithful and loyal to Calvin rather than wanting to jump out of his rowboat. The third, and it's sort of related to the use of Calvin's catechism. The third characteristic of late orthodoxy that she describes is a return to sola scriptura. And she explained this as a hallmark of the Reformation. And so, again, this is chipping away at that story of decline. These aren't late orthodox theologians who are abandoning the tradition. No, they're trying to honor one of the slogans of the Reformation, sola scriptura. In fact, she explains that the Late Orthodox theologians frame the abrogation of the Reformed Confessions as a return to sola 
scriptura. And so this late Orthodox period, they're preachers, there's flourishing forms of Christian piety, there's a new rhetoric that's akin to pietism. In terms of authority structures within the church, Calvin plays a significant role. His catechism does as well, but second to a new emphasis on sola scriptura. There's a kind of theological minimalism at work. Calvin's catechism and scripture, these are the two important sources. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So what is the major takeaway, as they say? Yeah. In summary, the thing that I found most interesting about the book and really learned the most from is that these late theologians didn't just become deists. They became evangelicals, for lack of a better term. They continued to be pious Protestants, but they have a new conception of what Protestantism is and should be. And so the thing that I learned that was very interesting is it's not that these late Orthodox theologians rejected the confessions, which we might be tempted to think from our corner of the Reformed world. Instead, they treated the Reformed confessions as adiaphora, as a thing indifferent. So they didn't reject them outwardly, but they did marginalize them. Exactly. You're right. They marginalized them, and they begin to function differently, which I'm tempted to say not at all in the life of the church. But that's something we should definitely talk about a little bit more. Okay. So how do you evaluate the book? Obviously, it's been very helpful. Well, I learned a great deal. I really enjoyed the book and then getting to know Professor McNutt and talking through some of these issues. I suppose in the past, I've probably was more indebted than I should have been to the French philosopher's version of the story, the story of decline and these clergymen becoming sort of deists. We've been very critical of these late Reformed theologians um, for various reasons. And so this book has been a wonderful opportunity to either perhaps lift some of the charges that we've pressed against the late Orthodox, but then also to clarify and I think sharpen some of our criticisms in other places. They weren't unorthodox deists. They were confession-less Protestants. Another thing that's wonderful about this book is that it kind of smells like the archive. And so with a neglected period of time like this, here comes a book that brings into the light all of this wealth of archival material. And so whatever criticisms we may have or whatever questions we may have for Professor McNutt, she sort of has a leg up on us in the sense that she's actually been to the archives and read these sermons and and these theologians. And so there's a great deal to be learned from the book for that reason. One of the things that's interesting to learn more about is this context of rising religious toleration as one of the implications of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. So in France, religious toleration is on the decline with the revocation of the edict. But in Geneva... But in Geneva, it's almost forced to be on the rise because there's a new flood of immigrants and refugees coming in, as well as what we've been describing as the Counter-Reformation's vitality and strength at this period. And so the question of religious toleration is an interesting one, and there's a lot to be learned from this book about that. But then there are a few issues that we might puzzle over and some questions we might put back to Professor McNutt. And one of the things that could be a whole rabbit trail to go down, so stop me if I get ahead of myself, but one of the things that's at at issue for me in the book is an actually a side debate about secularization. What is secularization? Secularization is, as Professor McNutt understands it, is 
about religious decline and eventual disappearance. And the rise of what people frequently refer to as secularism. As secularism. There's a popular television commentator who talks about secular progressivism. And so she takes that understanding of secularization and then argues against it to say this story in Geneva isn't a story of secularization understood as the decline and disappearance of religion, just becoming deists and then dispensing with the Christian faith altogether. And so she thinks she's making an argument against that version of secularization. I actually understand secularization differently. And most of our conversations uh, about her book while she was on campus were actually about the secularization thesis. And maybe you could do a whole office hours episode with me or with Professor Horton about secularization. I don't see secularization as decline or disappearance. I think that's a common misunderstanding or misinterpretation of the secularization thesis. But the better scholars writing in this field describe secularization as the transformation and accommodation of religion to a new context. And if it's understood that way, I think what her book accomplishes is a wonderful defense of the secularization thesis. And so there's a bit of a question that I have there. I mean, if you go back to that early period of orthodoxy that we described, the confessions from the 1530s right up into the 1700s had great importance in the life of the church. They had a public role and they helped organize ecclesiastical life, and then even more broadly, social life in the city of Geneva or in other reformed cities, etc. They were regulating documents for churches and for cities. One of the great transformations in the early modern period is the transformation of the role of confessions. One of the major transformations in this period occurs within the confessional culture of the church. It's not that the confessions are rejected and disappear. And here, I think she's right. It's just that their role is transformed. They don't really function in the way that they did in the 16th and 17th centuries. It becomes not a public role that organizes the church and the city. It's a thing that's adiaphora. It's a thing indifferent. It isn't rejected. I can believe it if I would like, or you could believe it, or you don't have to believe it. It becomes privatized. Exactly. It's privatized. And that, in my mind, is secularization. That's secularization at work. The public role of organizing documents like confessions is transformed and accommodated to a new setting. And this is something that we see all the time. Sure. I mean, you, you could be describing contemporary American Christianity. There are large denominations in North America which have confessional documents, but you could search you know, diligently and not find very many ministers, for example, who actually believe what these documents say. Or in the case of, for example, the Presbyterian Church USA, there's such a large collection of them and they're mutually contradictory in some cases, thinking about the tensions between the Confession of 1967 and the Westminster Standards, that nothing really has any binding force, any governing, regulating force. That's true. And so this is a good place to talk about confessional subscription itself. In other words, I think we have an opportunity to to sharpen our understanding of what's happening here. And I think we're, at least at this point, tweaking and modifying her interpretation rather than rejecting it. She's making an argument against the secularization thesis. I think, actually, she's really proven what and shown what the transformation of the public role of religion looked like in Geneva. And so this is a process of secularization where these confessions are displaced 
from the life of the church, and they're made private, a matter of individual discretion. That's what's happening. Now, one of the ways that this flushes out is, of course, the debate about confessional subscription for ministers within the church. And this goes back to really the high Orthodox period and the Amaraldian controversy. It isn't just an issue for the late Orthodox theologians. Now, the proponents of Amaraldianism and those who removed the oaths of subscription for the ministers in Geneva framed this as a return to Calvin and Sola Scriptura. And I think at this point, we would simply have to disagree with that factually and theologically. It's a betrayal of Calvin and his life's work to say that he didn't believe in confessional subscription or that he would countenance a church that didn't require ministers to publicly profess what they believed and then to defend it with their lives if necessary. And so I don't think that really is a faithful return to Calvin. I think that's misleading. As a return to sola scriptura, it's really perhaps the introduction of solo scriptura. Maybe not the introduction, because there are appearances of this argument before, but here you have sort of definitively in the life of the Geneva Church, a situation where the magisterial authority of scripture is used to trump the ministerial authority of the confessions, so much so that they really don't have any significant authority. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Without doing what the confessions say, and that is to go to the ecclesiastical assemblies and say, listen, this phrase or this clause or this article is simply not faithful to scripture and then going through the process of revising or even writing a new confession rather it's simply asserting a new or different interpretation of scripture and then ignoring the confession relegating it and so the question comes immediately to mind is this really sola scriptura is this what the reformers had well the people who taught us the doctrine of sola scriptura that scripture is the principal sole unique final authority for faith and life are the same ones who wrote down their interpretation of scripture and adopted it in the churches that's right and that's what you find in scripture it just recently i was discussing paul's letter to the colossians and in the beginning of the first chapter of colossians paul's prayer for the church there is that they would continue in prayer and be filled up with knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding it's about christian education to study scripture learn the great truths of god and the gospel and then it leads paul and should lead all christians to confess the faith and so 
from verse 15 on is a confession of faith. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, etc. And Paul carries on. So Christian education, returning to scripture, leads to confession. That's the model that you find in the Bible, and that's what the reformers and their heirs believed. And so, using sola scriptura and the magisterial authority of the Bible over against the authority of confessions is sort of false picture. So, this is not just a theoretical, historical, or academic question. This is for us who confess the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, the Westminster Standards— These are uh, vital questions of who we are, why we do what we do, why do we exist? So in the end, after reflecting on this fascinating book, I think Richard Muller really is on to something. This is the afterlife of Protestant orthodoxy. And David Steinmetz is also correct. The death of Francis Turretin is the end of an epoch. In this late orthodox period, however evangelical they may have been, represent a departure from the earlier and high orthodox periods. And so really, I read this as a story about secularization of the Reformed Church in Geneva, and as a story about the aftermath of the Amaraldian controversy of the 1640s. And that may require a little bit of explanation. Over against Moses Amaro and his colleagues teaching in France at the Academy of Samur, Francis Turretin was charged by the Reformed churches uh, or tasked with responding to this debate by drafting a confession. And so along with a theologian in Zurich, Johann Heinrich Heidegger, they draft the Formula Consensus Helvetica. And slowly, over 15 to 20-year period of time, the Reformed churches internationally accept and adopt this confession as the best theological and biblical response to Amaraldianism. And then Amaro dies, and the controversy goes underground for a while. But during this late Orthodox period, beginning especially with Jean-Alphonse Turretin, the Amaraldian school returns. And ultimately, this story about late Orthodoxy is a story about the triumph of the Amaraldians and Jean-Alphonse Turretin. There's a very pregnant moment in Genevan church life when on New Year's Day, 1700, Jean-Alphonse gives an oration in the academy for the theological students and other students in the academy and the faculty. And he describes the era of the Reformation and of early orthodoxy as really a tragedy. He actually likens it to the story of Noah in Genesis 9 and his sons. It's a shameful sort of history, this confessional history. The confessional impulse of the Reformed churches is something that we should be embarrassed by. It's like Noah's nakedness. And so we need to back into the tent and throw a cloak over it and cover the sins of our fathers with a cloak of love. That's how he describes it in his New Year's Day oration. And the period of late orthodoxy then is that story. It's about remorse for the confessional history in Reformed churches. And the undoing, it's a story of deconfessionalization, which again doesn't mean the rejection of the confessions outright, but the marginalization of them. And so they play this role that's private and a matter of personal discretion. Is it fair to correlate late 
Orthodox Geneva, as you're describing it, symbolized by this oration by Jean-Alphonse Tertini to something like mainline Christianity, whereas we tend to find in the sideline churches, that is the NAPARC churches, North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council churches, so the United Reformed Churches, the PCA, the OPC, those sorts of churches, the RPCNA, etc., that we tend to identify more with the documents and the theologians and the piety and practice of early and high orthodoxy. Is there something to that correlation? I think there's something into that. I think that's true. So this really isn't just an academic matter or a matter of historical curiosity, but this is a question of the legitimacy of being sideline churches, being confessional churches. That's right. It isn't just a story about early modern theology. It's a story about our modern and contemporary situation. What role should the confessions play in the lives of our churches? And is there a place for an ongoing Reformed tradition? You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And there's a lesson here, I think, isn't there? If your interpretation of what happened in Geneva is correct, that it was really the triumph of Amaraldianism and toleration of it and indifference to the concerns of earlier orthodoxy and embarrassment over it, there's a lesson here about the failure of the Reformed churches to successfully address the Amaraldian crisis. The French churches tried repeatedly and failed and, in effect, gave up. And then, finally, of course, Heidegger and Francis Turretin wrote the Helvetic Consensus. And it did find approval outside of the Swiss churches, and it was approved by the Swiss churches, but it didn't last very long. And whenever I discuss the Helvetic Consensus formula, one of the first things that people will say is, well, it was interesting, but it was speculative and we should do, you know, we ought not to take it seriously. So is it fair to draw that kind of inference from this, that if we don't face serious questions and deal with them in a careful and thorough way that sticks, that the failure to address those questions can have unintended consequences, maybe devastating consequences? Well, this isn't precisely what you're talking about, but one of the unintended consequences here is the churches were doing a worthwhile thing in addressing the public role of confessions in society. Unfortunately, they threw the baby out with the bathwater and also modified the public role of the confessions for the church. And we would have been much happier with the latter and not with the former. It's one thing to say that we're not going to impose this confession on a civil entity, That's right. Which is the American settlement in 1776. I think most of us are probably glad that you don't have to subscribe the three forms of unity of the Westminster Standards to live in Escondido. Well, because in the 16th century and in the 17th century, whoever the prince was, whoever the magistrate was, that's what your religion was. So literally one night you could go to bed as a member in good standing of a Reformed congregation, confessing the Reformed faith, and then the next day, in the death of the prince and the accession of a new prince, suddenly you're a Lutheran. That's right. And we don't want that. Americans said, we don't want that. We want the churches to be distinct from the civil magistrate. But as you say, it's another thing to say that the confessions don't have any binding authority as authoritative ecclesiastical summaries of the Word of God in the church. And so part of the problem in the 18th century was the failure to make that distinction in Geneva. That's right. That's where I was going. It's a failure to have addressed Emeraldianism sort of narrowly defined. 
But then it's a much broader failure to really negotiate changing social and political climate. Attempts were made, and some cities and some traditions did better than others. And in Geneva here in the 18th century, it was not a passing grade. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.